I haven't been in the pulpit preaching a, a great, very much this uh, summer. In fact, I only preach once a month here. I did preach in a couple different places. Um, part of that is that uh, Ben Verhulst uh, has, was an intern this summer, and he finished up this past week. And uh, I just want to recognize that, and I want to thank Ben uh, for doing that. And um, it was great having him uh, preach for us, an opportunity for him to grow and to learn, but also a time for me to rest. And one of the things about preaching is, uh, especially uh, week to week through the years, actually takes a great deal out of you. And so this summer was a great blessing and gift. I was still working, <laughs> but I was able to think about other things and do some deeper reading, do some writing, and do some bigger picture reflection um, on our church and you know, our mission as a people. So um, I'm back now um, on a regular basis, and I'm actually really excited um, to, to be preaching, although I have to say that when you haven't done it in a bit, uh, it gets, you know, you kind of get out of practice. And I thought I was going to finish my sermon yesterday by lunchtime, but it didn't, wasn't finished until about eight. So uh, sometimes things just come a little bit uh, more difficult. This morning, um, in the light of our baptism that we just saw, we are going to reflect on Psalm 1. So hear God's word to us from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Lord, this morning I pray that you teach us what it means to be a good tree. Like that tree that the psalmist speaks of, planted by streams of water, whose fruit that comes in due season, and his leaves that never wither. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be a good tree this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most important pieces of parenting wisdom that I received came from a close friend about 20 years older than myself with grown children, and he offered me not so much a piece of advice or wisdom, but a reflection of his own, on his own aspirations for his children. And what he said was that what I hope most for my kids isn't necessarily that they're, they grow up to be happy, or that they're smart and get into a good school, or they become successful in their careers and financially stable, the thing that I want most for them is I want them to be good. That's the only thing I really care about. I want them to be good. I want my boys to grow up to be good men. <clears throat> now, at first glance, this might seem like a pretty underwhelming vision for parenting, right? Right? Um, a pretty low goal. Everybody wants their kids to be good. Who wants a bad child? Nobody, right? <laughs> but it seems that 
your understanding of raising a good child depends on what you understand it means to be good. Now, when we think about being good as a moral quality of a person, it's, for us in our context, it's just not very inspiring. Uh, and most people don't have uh, deep aspirations to be good. And I think the reason is that most of us basically assume that we're pretty good already. And when we think about being good, it doesn't really evoke in us anything very specific or concrete or something that we aspire to be or to do. We generally think we are good. But the Bible reflects on the goodness of persons all the time, and it doesn't do it in a kind of abstract way. It doesn't assume that people are good. Goodness um, in the Bible is a moral fruit of a life committed to God. That's the good life in the Bible is, is the moral fruit of a life committed to God. And when the Bible talks about good, the good or the goodness, it often uses an organic metaphor, horticulture, plants, trees, fruit. And one of the most um, uh, well-known examples of this comes from Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He's speaking of people. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So according to Jesus, people are like trees. And either you're a good tree or a bad tree. When my friend expressed his desire that his kids grow up to be good, this is, I think, what he meant. He wanted his children to be good trees. And so when we bring our kids to baptism, what we're wanting, what we're desiring for them is to plant their life in soil, in the right soil in which they will grow up to be good trees. And so today, what I want to do is I want to reflect on what does it mean to raise a good tree. But I don't want to, you know, this isn't a parenting sermon. Um, I want to reflect on that question by asking this question, what does it mean for us to be good trees? What does it mean for us to be good trees that bear good fruit in our lives? And so to do this, we're going to reflect on Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is very much in the background of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to explore two things about being a good tree. I want to explore what are the, the roots and the fruits. The roots of a good tree and the fruits of a good tree. So let's start with the roots. The most basic question we can ask is, what is a good tree? What makes a good tree good? Uh, the psalmist, when he, he refers to the tree that's planted by the streams of water, he's using the, 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 the imagery of a tree to describe the, the life of a righteous person. The righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So the good tree, to be a good tree, is a consequence of a certain kind of life, a certain kind of lifestyle, which is one of righteousness. And in particular, the, the way the psalmist describes this lifestyle of righteousness is in terms of the person who makes, who delights in the law of God and meditates on God's law day and night. This is a person who becomes a good tree. But in the Bible, righteousness isn't simply a kind of moral quality of a person, um, not simply a morally upright person, but righteousness refers very simply to a person who is right with God. 
That's what it means to be a righteous person. You're right with God. You're a person who trusts the Lord. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet in chapter 17, um, uses very similar imagery as the psalm does. He captures this whole idea of the righteous person as a person who's right with God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the streams and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The good tree is a life grounded in God. The good tree is a life that is rooted in God. Being a good tree is, the good tree is good because it is vitally connected to the true source of life, which is the very person and the very presence of God. Now, when we think about trees, we tend to think about trees in natural settings, such as along streams and riverbanks or out in forests. When the psalmist speaks of trees, often, not always, the psalmist will speak of trees that are planted in the house of God or in the temple courts. A couple psalms for you. The psalmist describes himself, he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like the cedar of Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of the Lord. So what's going on here with this idea of trees growing in the temple or in the temple courts? I think there's a very important spiritual truth here for us to understand, and is that there's something unique about God's temple presence that is life-giving. God's temple presence makes things alive. The presence of God makes things alive. They grow, they flourish. The presence of God is like water, it's like sunlight, it's like fertile soil. It makes things fruitful, it nourishes, it creates abundance. And all this, of course, goes back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a holy of holies. It was the center of a temple. And in that temple, God had set a priest and a priestess to tend to it. And in that garden, the Lord God walked with them. God's indwelling temple presence was with them. And as you'll recall, this garden was full of trees, trees full of fruit that were delight to the eyes. The Garden of Eden is a place that is full of the presence of God. And because of this, it is a place of bounty, of blessing, that is teeming with life and fruitfulness and beauty. That is the presence of God. However, as you know how the story unfolds, Adam and Eve, when they sin, they were expelled from the garden. They're expelled from the presence of God and they move, have to go east, east of Eden, away from God and his presence into a world that has been cursed into a world that is full of death, into a world full of drought and destruction and famine and thorns and thistles and things far, far worse than these. One of the important things that the psalmist is working with here and that is evident in the Genesis account is that when we move away from the presence of God, we, we leave the source of life. We move away from the source of life itself. Outside of God's presence, life eventually withers and dies 
and becomes fruitless. And that's why the psalmist here, um, as he compares uh, the righteous person, he compares in contrast to the unrighteous person or the wicked person, or simply the word wicked means one who is turned away from God. And the psalmist compares this person to chaff, chaff that the wind drives away. You know what chaff is, right? Chaff is like this, this tiny skin uh, that it surrounds uh, nuts and berries and seeds. And um, uh, when these seeds or berries are processed, the skin comes off and it's very light. Uh, if you were to go into my basement, there's all kinds of chaff on my basement floor because I roast coffee. And a green coffee bean has this little, little skin on it that when you roast the coffee, the skin sort of comes off of it and it blows around. It blows around in the roaster and it sort of, it's easy flammable and it blows away. And when I, after I'm done with my coffee, I shake it and I blow and the shaft just sort of comes off and it falls everywhere. It's insubstantial. It has no real substance, right? That's what the psalmist is saying here about the way of the wicked. When we turn away from God in our lives, when we, when we turn away from the presence of God, what, what we're doing is we're leaving the very source of life itself that sustains us. We get blown away by the slightest breeze. But not so the righteous. They're like a good tree planted by streams of living water, for they do not fear when the heat comes, as Jeremiah says, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There's so much here to say by way of application of this point, but I want to get straight to the heart of the matter. Friends, there is nothing more important in your everyday life, in your waking life, than you seeking the life-giving presence of God, the face of God. Yes, God is present always and every way to all people, but there's a difference between God's sort of omnipresence as the Creator and His personal presence as our Lord and Father and Redeemer, His personal presence, right? To those who have turned away from him, which the psalmist describes with the words of sinners, scoffers, and the wicked, God is not present. His temple presence is not available. He is not communicating with them because they are not communicating with him. And what the psalmist makes utmost of importance is that the psalmist, the righteous one, is one who seeks the presence of the Lord. This is what he means by meditating on his law day and night. He is seeking to know the mind and the will of the Lord. And the way you do this is through his word. This is a person that seeks to be in right relationship with God, tends to this most important relationship in life. I mean, this is what it means to have a devotional life, right? <laughs> a devotional life is not just like checking a box. Oh, I prayed and I read my Bible. A devotional life is seeking the face of God. It's, it's this earnest desire of my heart. It's like, I want to be present to you, Lord, and I want you to be present to me. I want to be in your presence. That's what it means to be a good tree, is to have a life that is rooted and grounded in the presence of the Lord. That's how we become a good tree, and that's how our lives bear good fruit. So, there, that's the roots. The roots of the good tree is a life grounded in the presence of God. 
So what are the fruit of a good tree? What are the fruit of a good tree? There are two fruits I want to talk about. The first fruit that the psalmist starts with is the fruit of happiness. Blessed is the man, or better translated, happy. Happy is the man who does not sit in the council of sinners. Uh, the, the word blessing or blessed in the Bible um, is the Bible's word for, the, for happiness. It, it's a very deep understanding of happiness, but it, it is appropriately translated as happiness. True happiness is nothing other than a life of abundant blessing that comes from God. And so what this psalm gives us and all the psalms give us is a guide to the happy life. And the happy life, according to the scriptures, is a God-centered life. It's a life that has God at the center of our lives. Now, I want to return to that for a moment to um, the theme of what we as parents aspire for our children. I mean, if you were asked, most of us, and I probably include myself in this, you know, what is your, Anna, if I'm, what, what is your highest aspiration for your kids? What is the thing you want for your kids? I think most of us would probably say, I just want my kids to be happy. I want them to be happy. Um, one of the universal experiences of being a parent is that it's very hard for you as a parent to be happy when your children are unhappy. It's very hard. When your kids are unhappy, when they're suffering, you, you also are. But, you know, we desire our kids' happiness not just for selfish reasons because we want to be happy, but we desire our kids' happiness because we know at a deep level that when they're happy, they're flourishing. Because generally, ordinarily, happiness is a sign of goodness, of, of flourishing in their lives. But I think there's an important truth that we need to recognize about happiness um, when it comes to the biblical understanding, and it's deeply countercultural. Happiness is the fruit of being good. Happiness is the fruit of being good, of being a good tree. Lasting happiness only flows out of goodness. It's not the other way around, right? Our lives become happy because they are good. They are not deemed to be good because they're happy. I know this is a very subtle distinction. What I mean is this, is the happiness has to be ordered to the good life, not the other way around. Happiness cannot be our ultimate goal, our ultimate aspiration for ourselves or for our children. Goodness, goodness has to be our ultimate aspiration for ourselves and our children. And again, what I mean by goodness is simply a life grounded in the life of God. That's what goodness means. It's a life grounded in the goodness of, in the, in, in the life of God. One of the things that our culture um, teaches us, and one of the things our culture does, is that it has completely disconnected happiness from moral categories of the good, the right, and the true, right? Our default belief seems to be something like this, is that as long as it makes you happy, it's good. As long as you're not hurting anybody, of course. Right? And so there's this thinking that we, I think we all embrace in various shades and forms is that as long as they're happy, it's okay. As long as it's not hurting anybody. But this is not how the psalmist thinks about happiness. Happiness is the fruit, the byproduct of a good life, of a life that is well-lived. It's not the basis of it. Now, for sure, too, 
The psalmist does not promise that being good will always make you happy. Happiness, again, is a fruit. When you think about fruits, I love peaches. It's my favorite fruit. But I can only get real honest peaches for about two months of the year. Those peaches from Chile or Argentina are not the real thing, right? And it, so fruit comes in seasons, and it's the same with happiness and blessedness in our life. There are seasons of it, and there are seasons when it's a little bit thin. It's in due season. And for the Psalms, they're very clear. The righteous person will experience great suffering. Nevertheless, suffering is not incompatible with happiness. And the reason that it's not incompatible with happiness because the deep roots of happiness are not in that all the circumstances in our life are going in our favor. The deep root of happiness is the fact that our life is grounded in God. And we always have access to the presence of God no matter the circumstances of our life. I think when we make happiness... The highest, goal, the highest goal of our life. And, and I just want to say, we nev- hardly anybody does this consciously, especially if you're a Christian. We're not consciously saying, I want that happiness is my highest goal in life. We simply just sort of fall into it. But when we make happiness the highest goal of our life, we are in danger, spiritually speaking. And what we are is we're sabotaging ourselves. Because what we do is we, again, unknowingly, we set a condition on our relationship with God. And basically say something like this, God, I believe, I will follow, and I will obey as long as I'm happy, (laughs) as long as it's working. But when suffering and hardship comes in and disrupts our life and the happiness that we sort of envisioned or or desired doesn't come to us, and in many ways because we've made tough decisions about following Jesus, doubt sets in. Question set in. We begin to doubt the whole thing. It's not working. Christianity is not working. It's not working for me. It doesn't result in happiness. Dear friends, <laughs> happiness is a fruit of being a good tree. But real happiness is not incompatible with persistent and deep suffering in life. And that brings us to the second fruit, because it's not the only fruit. <laughs> there is a second fruit. A more important fruit that helps us learn how to integrate suffering into our life in a meaningful way. So happiness is not the only fruit of being a good tree. There's another one, and that one is what I'll just call this. It is a life of deep moral purpose. I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he talked about good fruit and bad fruit. He was talking about a life of deep moral purpose. It's what the psalmist means when he talks about the law of God. To keep the law of God, to meditate it on it day and night, is to have a life of deep moral purpose. It's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount as he elaborates. It's what the two commandments, the two great commandments summarize, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength, And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. If we are obedient to these things, we will have a life of deep moral purpose. Okay, so now I think a few of you would disagree with me on this point, right? (laughs) We should obey the law of God. We should follow God's commandments. And yet, isn't there something missing? Is there something more here? 
I think much of the church today, um, we find ourselves in a situation that is, is very much like uh, the, the rich young ruler from the Gospels. You remember the rich young ruler? Um, he is a man that believes that he has dutifully kept the law, and yet he has this deep sense that something is missing in his life. There's something that's lacking. And so he comes to Jesus to ask Jesus about it. He comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what's missing? What's missing in my life? What's lacking? Jesus responds, If you would inherit eternal life, you must keep the commandments. It's like, okay, well, which commandments? Jesus says, well, all the commandments. And then he says, well, I've kept the commandments since I was a young boy. And then Jesus says this. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, you know how the story ends, right? Now, when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Now, this is a man that seemed to have everything, but it still wasn't enough, right? He had everything, but it wasn't enough. He still lacked something. What was he lacking? He was lacking deep moral purpose. <laughs> That's what his life lacked, deep moral purpose. And Jesus, Jesus, he offers it to him. He offers it to him, but he's unable to take it. He's unable to embrace it. He was a moral man. He was probably, as we'd see, a good man. But he lacked moral purpose, which is what true obedience to the law creates in us as fruit. So when Jesus holds us out to him, a very specific vision of a life of deep moral purpose, he turns away dejected. And of course, the subtext of the story in the gospel is that this man really didn't truly keep the law. (laughs) He loved his wealth more than he loved God, and he loved people. He he broke the very first commandment, not to have any idols. And Jesus' invitation to sell his possessions was simply an invitation for him to uncover this and to actually become what God wants him to be. Dear friends, what is the deep moral purpose of your life? What is the deep moral purpose of your life? Is it just to be happy? Is it just to be materially comfortable? Is it just to kind of break in and make it in your career to be successful? Is it to have your dream family? or to go and do as you please, to engage in all your favorite hobbies and activities, or just to spend time with your grandkids. Really, what is your deep moral purpose in life? These things aren't bad. Those things aren't bad. And they're not even incompatible with a life of deep moral purpose. But what is it that you're really living for? What is it that you're living for? Jesus gave the rich young Euler, a man, this man, a very specific vision of a life of deep moral purpose, which is really what it means to have eternal life. (laughs) 
Eternal life is to have a life of deep moral purpose, something that lasts. And this man could not embrace what Jesus is called to follow him. If he had, it would have fulfilled this sense of lack in his life. And no doubt, it would have produced some suffering and pain and changes in his life, but probably deep and profound happiness that he had never known. But he was deeply confused about what was most important in life. What was life worth living for? And it's the same for us today. I, I, I think part of the reason, you know, we live in this culture in which there's more material wealth and comfort and, and you name it than at any time in history, and yet it seems as if, like, there's more depression, death dive, despair, and un- unhappiness and sadness in our culture than at any time. What's going on? What's going on? Part of the reason is we have no deep moral purpose except ourselves. We only have ourselves to live for. And what you realize is that that's not something worth living for or dying for. It's like chaff. It's empty. It gets blown away. Friends, what Jesus held out to the rich young girl, he holds out to you and to me. And it is a life of moral consequence. It is a life of eternal significance. It is a life that does not get, become like chaff, that at the end of your life just gets blown away and withers. Is what Jesus means when he, when he talks about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the rest of this stuff will be added to you. A life of deep moral purpose is what Jesus calls us to. And then the reality is, is it looks different for everybody. Jesus doesn't call all people to sell their possessions and give to the poor. I can't tell you what your deep moral purpose is. For me, it was a call to pastoral ministry. For Joe and Krista, it was foster care and adoption. And most of the times, our deep moral purpose will never be revealed in great acts of sacrifice and and noble moral worth, but it's going to be the little imperceptible things and decisions you make in your day-to-day life to live for eternity rather than to live for just what is now. It is something, again, that I can't tell you what it is. It is something you have to work out as your life is rooted in God. But it will emerge. When you become a good tree planted by streams of water, it will become clear to you. It will become clear to you as your life is rooted and grounded in God. Okay, let me um, draw this to a close. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that a life of deep moral purpose is a condition for eternal life and salvation. I'm not saying that. We don't earn eternal life because we have a life of deep moral purpose. The rich young ruler seemed to misunderstand this point. And the disciples after him, when they asked, who can then be saved? And of course, Jesus responded, nothing is impossible with God. A life of deep moral purpose is a consequence and a sign that we are true followers of Jesus and that our life is planted in him. It is the real fruit of a life in God. Now, there's one thing I want to draw your attention to in this psalm, Psalm 1, that's very easy to miss, but is very important. 
So the translation in our version says that um, it says the, of the righteous person, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. The literal Hebrew there is he's like a tree transplanted. The word there very clearly is transplanted. He's like a tree transplanted by streams of water. Now, why is this significant? It's because the word transplant presumes an intervention, <laughs> right? It's not a naturally occurring thing. And you need to understand this, that the good life, a life of deep moral purpose is not just something that's going to fall in and just kind of naturally express itself in your life. It is a, something that has to happen because of an intervention, a divine intervention. And that word transplant in, in, the, in the Hebrew and the Old Bible is actually a word when you look at it, is it's a salvation word. It's a word that God used of Israel when he said, you are like a vine in Egypt, and I, I pulled you out, I plucked you up, I, and I replanted you in the promised land. And that's what God does to us in Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. That's what baptism is. It's a kind of a transplanting. Jesus has been transplanted out of just the natural family into a supernatural family. And because of that, now he has access to supernatural life. And it is the same for you and it is the same for me. We have become transplanted. And this is precisely the idea behind Jesus' own teachings in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, when he talks about himself as a vine and us as his branches. And he says this, and I'll close with this. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that the good life, as we have talked about it, it would inspire us. That you would uh, give us inspiration uh, for a life of deep moral purpose, which is, which is a fruit of a life lived in you and a, a fruit of a life that is one of eternal consequence and significance in, in this time now. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would draw us into you, that you would do that intervening work of like a gardener. You are the great gardener, Lord, and you, you pluck us up. You, you dig us out of the soil that leads to death, and you put us in the soil of life. And I pray that you would be doing that this morning, that you would be uh, planting us in rich, deep soil of your grace. We give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.